It's been a decade since the collapse of Lehman Brothers. Yes, a decade. If you look at the global landscape today, with markets at record highs, the US economy expanding strongly, and the Federal Reserve raising interest rates, you'd be forgiven for thinking that it almost never happened. But it did. And here on Bloomberg Quint, we are speaking to people who were integral to the management of the Indian economy in those turbulent times, requesting them to look back a little bit, but also look forward. Joining us here today is Dr. Montek Singh Aluwalia, former Deputy Chairman of the Oswald Planning Commission. Uh, Dr. Aluwalia, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I'm going to request you, Dr. Aluwalia, to jog your memory a little bit uh, and tell us what you remember most uh, of those initial days. Uh, the uh, news coming through that Lehman Brothers had collapsed and then the implications unfolding quite quickly, not just for the United States, but also the global economy. Well, um, I guess, you know, uh, it kind of... It became evident uh, very quickly that this was going to be quite a major event. I mean, frankly, initially, uh, the collapse of Lehman Brothers, I recall the discussions amongst many people uh, focusing very much on why couldn't the Treasury have stepped in, sort of the way they did for Bear Stearns. So there were many people based in the US who felt that you know this could have been avoided uh, as if uh, stepping in providing liquidity uh, would have sort of solved the problem. Although we now know, given the nature of the asset price bubble and the enormous financial vulnerability that had been built into the system, that just providing a little bit of liquidity would just have kicked the can down the road. But you know, that became evident to us only a little bit later. Uh, not that much later, because I think uh, uh, the international financial system uh, was quite aware that suddenly uh, that there was a huge uh, degree of uncertainty in the financial system. I mean, credit has choked up. Nobody quite knew whose balance sheet was sound. And uh, you had a lot of international activity. You know, Gordon, uh, uh, Gordon Brown talking about uh, another Bretton Woods, save the world, that kind of thing. So we soon became aware uh, that this could well turn out to be a big problem. And I remember that, you know, after about 15 days of uh, the collapse, uh, when uh, looking at what was happening in the stock exchange, in the Dow, I mean, you know, the initial reaction of the stock exchanges was not that different from what happened in 1929. So there was that thought that maybe we're seeing something a lot bigger uh, than we thought to begin with. But you know, as far as India is concerned, I mean, we always knew that we were a little bit insulated. I mean, our banks did not have any of these toxic assets on their balance sheet. But if there was a credit squeeze around the world and a withdrawal of credit, I mean, we would be part of the world from which credit would be withdrawn irrespective of our underlying credit worthiness. So we were concerned uh, that we need to do something. Uh, and uh, there were meetings taken domestically, uh, parallel to what was going on internationally. I mean, globally, uh, there was a feeling that, look, uh, this could precipitate a very severe recessionary trends, and that we ought to go in for a stimulus. And that's more or less what we did. We, we went in for a big fiscal stimulus. We also went in for a big monetary, well, not a big, but a reversal of monetary stance. You know, 
Governor Reddy had been tightening monetary policy, quite rightly, because inflation had been edging up and growth was quite high anyway. Uh, but faced with a new situation, it became necessary to reverse that. And I think that was actually handled quite well. We were a little concerned, by the way, that you know there was some news from Singapore that one of our larger private sector banks was experiencing a huge increase in the uh, spreads on credit default swaps, et cetera. Um, and it's sort of implying that uh, maybe there were some doubts. And we got the governor and the government generally to give a clear signal that uh, no Indian financial institution will suffer because of liquidity shortage. I mean, we felt quite sure that the system was actually solvent, and the real concern was whether uh, some institutions might suddenly experience a liquidity shortage. So those are the things that we did at the time. Dr. Alwalia, you alluded to you know the trouble that emerged, or the you know specter of trouble that had emerged around ICICI Bank. There was concern around liquidity shortage at mutual funds. There was, of course, trouble in the forex markets. Call money market rates are spiking. Uh, I'm wondering whether systems were in place uh, where all concerned authorities would come together, uh, would discuss this, uh, and then you know do the needful. Uh, or was it all sort of being uh, you know held, uh, taken care of from Delhi mostly, uh, which was then uh, you know sort of communicated to the concerned regulators? No, uh, actually, uh, when you say systems were in place, uh, when you have such an unusual event, uh, systems are never in place to handle big events of this kind. But I recall that at that time, uh, the Prime Minister, Dr. Manmohan Singh, took a meeting. Uh, I was invited, the governor was invited, the finance minister, of course, was there. Now, generally, on macroeconomic matters, you wouldn't have a meeting uh, chaired by the prime minister. So that made it evident to everybody that this is actually unusual and different. After that, I think the system actually worked the way it should. And whoever had to be given appropriate signals to uh, was done within the system. Uh, we didn't keep trying to uh, mastermind this from New Delhi. I mean, once, once it was very clear uh, that liquidity had to be released, uh, loosened up, uh, a number of steps were taken by the Reserve Bank in very quick succession. And thereafter, the management of that part uh, of, the, uh, of the system was really left to the Reserve Bank to do. Dr. Alawalia, uh, you know, uh, it's... You remember, in our case... Uh... Go ahead, sir. Yep. No, I'm saying, in our case... We didn't have banks that were hugely exposed and integrated with the global financial system. So uh, it was a less problematic thing, and that the levers that the Reserve Bank had to uh, increase liquidity in the system, not just lowering the repo rate, but also the CRR and loosening up the ability of banks to borrow if they need to, allowing them to borrow abroad at slightly higher rates just in, in order to make sure that they don't get a squeeze from liqu for liquidity. All of that happened. 
Uh, Dr. Alwale, you were central uh, you know, to this entire management process uh, during those days from one, uh, what one has read. Uh, subsequently, uh, did your understanding of the global economy, uh, did your contacts across you know, global institutions help? Because at the end of the day, we were sort of uh, you know, being hit by what was happening miles and miles away. Uh, so we had no direct control in some ways of how we would wake up and respond uh, the next morning to events of overnight. No, that's absolutely true. But, you know, uh, I think it was in November of that year uh, that President Bush convened uh, the summit meeting at the G20 level. And I was the Sherpa for Dr. Manmohan Singh. So for the next couple of years, I mean, obviously the finance ministers and their deputies were meeting all the time. But that was a routine meeting. They did that anyway. Uh, for the first time, you had meetings being convened at the summit level, and they were all focusing on what can we do internationally. Now, our concern was that uh, we didn't think we would need to go to the IMF, by the way. Uh, we thought we had enough reserves to handle the problem domestically. Uh, but we did need a strengthening of the IMF just to create confidence in the system. And of course, if we needed to go, we needed it to be properly uh, resourced. And this was a big problem, because the IMF didn't have the resources needed to handle a crisis of this kind. So a lot of our concern was focused on that. You know, when you get a squeeze internationally, there's not much that you can do by simply complaining that, look, we're being hurt because of you guys. Because, you know, you, ha you have to do what you can to offset that and then let the system settle down. I think from that point of view, uh, the, the international focus was primarily uh, that we better recapitalize, not recapitalize, but fund the IMF appropriately. And I think they ended up agreeing on 500 million SDRs or something like that, uh, additional capital to go into the IMF, which most of us thought was really quite reasonable. And it was a very large sum at the time. So to get that done, and I think that was kind of agreed within eight months, because uh, uh, the, the summit meeting in Washington, presided over by President Bush, took place in November. And uh, the, recap, the, the additional resources for the fund were pretty much sorted out by the next summit in, in London, which was in June of 2009. A very quick reaction of the international community uh, on what most people saw as a big problem. And you know, we, we were able to manage domestically without too much difficulty, simply because we also adopted uh, policies of stimulus. So we had a, a drop in the growth rate during the year 2008, 2009. I think it went down to about 6.7%. We put in a big fiscal stimulus. Uh, the growth rate picked up in the very next year, which is 2008, uh, sorry, 2009, 2010. As a matter of fact, at that time, I remember the IMF, when they came for a, a domestic, you know, what is called the Article 4 consultation, which they do every year, I mean, their assessment was that, look, there's a big crisis. You guys have been hit in 2008, 2009. And this 6.7% is going to go down next year. In other words, 2009, 2010 was going to end up with something between 5 and 6%. That's how they saw it. But because of the quick response that we had, 
we were actually able to see a recovery. I mean, the 6.7 in 2008, 2009 became, I forget, 8.6 or something like that in the very next year. Uh, so we felt vindicated. Uh, we were criticized by some people at home uh, that we had in, uh, injected too much of a stimulus. But the point was, uh, when the world is uh, teetering on the brink, uh, it's important to give a sense that the economy can get back to normal. And I think from that point of view, uh, the deployment of domestic policy seemed to be sufficient. In parallel, I mean, the global economy seemed to get reinforced with the IMF being strengthened and so on. I mean, other countries did go to the IMF, but we didn't. All right, Dr. Alwali, I won't get into a debate about the domestic stimulus, but I do want to ask you as an economist, uh, do you remember what you thought when you saw the unconventional policy measures being rolled out by central banks? Uh, you know, as an economist, uh, do, you, do you recall whether you said, okay, this is the time that we need such measures, if any, uh, or did you think, oh my God, what are we doing? Uh, which bucket did your response fall into? Well, no, my, as an economist, I'm afraid I was, uh, in those days, uh, an un, unapologetic Keynesian. In, in fact, my criticism, if any, of our colleagues in the developed countries was that ideology seemed to be preventing them from pursuing fiscal stimulus because the ideology was very much against any kind of fiscal stimulus. They did it for one year, but really pretty much a year later, uh, they wanted to sort of start backing off on the fiscal side. But they were quite happy to do it on the monetary side. So I remember in some of the discussions that I felt that, look, you could probably do more if you had a, a considered fiscal stimulus than retaining a conservative fiscal policy and having a very loose monetary policy, which is what actually happened. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, that creates the problem also that you never know where this money goes. So you kind of you could build up all sorts of asset price price bubbles in due course, but uh, I was I was clear that we needed to do a lot. Uh, I did have some doubts on the unconventional monetary policy, but those doubts were based on the assumption that we could get a better mix. That we could do more fiscal and less monetary. I mean, obviously, if you're not going to do any fiscal, then you have to do a little bit more monetary. All right. Dr. Alwalia, 10 years later, are you willing to... My impression, by the way, is that... Uh... Sorry, do go ahead. Yeah? No, no, my, my recollection is that uh, I think it was the, the antipathy to any kind of fiscal policy was dominantly from the Germans, and to some extent, when Cameron became prime minister, it was also Cameron. I mean, they both had a more ideological opposition. I don't want to use the word ideological, just a, a technical preference, if you want, not to use fiscal policy in the belief that that can lead to all kinds of things and a greater willingness to do monetary policy. I think part of the reason for that was the mistaken notion that you know, fiscal policy uh, implies that the governments consciously choose to depart from a set path. Whereas monetary policy, you're sort of pretending that you're leaving it to the central banks who are all knowledgeable, et cetera, et cetera. I suspect there was a little bit of that also in their thinking. Well, I, I would have preferred 
more fiscal and less monetary. And that's actually what we did here also. That's true. Uh, Dr. Alorias, I was going to ask you whether 10 years later you're willing to give a verdict on uh, the success uh, of those unconventional monetary policy measures or are you still holding off on uh, you know, making uh, a decision? Because at the end of the day, we have not seen the complete unwind of them. So we don't know how things play out eventually when the circle uh, is complete. Well, I think that's uh, substantially true uh, that, you know, um, um, it hasn't been a particularly smooth uh, transition. You know, the end result has been that the world, it depends on how you look at it. I mean, the world certainly didn't collapse. And uh, at one time, the negative assessments were very severe. Well, we avoided that. Uh, the developing countries kind of limped back to some kind of a normal, but they did take a long time. Uh, and some of the countries in, in, in Europe are still uh, in deep trouble. It's not clear to me that the financial system is necessarily more robust. I mean, in the sense that uh, there used to be this talk about, you know, one of the problems is that the financial institutions have become too big to fail. There's no evidence that that has changed. So I think uh, if one is sufficiently uh, critical, I would say that we managed to avoid uh, the worst consequences of the crisis managed to kind of get back, I mean, the industrialized world, uh, but financial vulnerabilities still remain very strong. As far as the developing world is concerned, I think we rode the crisis quite well. I mean, it could be that in India we should have done less stimulus, or certainly we should have withdrawn the stimulus a little bit earlier, but by and large, the developing countries did quite well. So all told, I think uh, the world didn't do too badly. Uh, out of what looked at one stage to be a huge crisis. Dr. Alwalia, do you uh, fear that there are some possibilities that there could be asset bubbles uh, building up in the West, whether it's uh, the equity markets you look at or the bond markets where yields have remained low for so long? Uh, as this unwind process uh, continues, uh, perhaps that's a risk that could emerge, that some of these asset markets uh, could readjust? Well, I don't feel sufficiently competent to pronounce on that, but you know, I mean, I read what all of you read, and there is a sense uh, that we may be having a bit of an asset bubble uh, building up. Uh, but I think we have enough uh, uh, tools to handle that. So I don't expect to see any major uh, uh, uncontrollable kind of problem. Um, but you know, I, th I think in a, as the world globalizes, uh, and particularly for small countries like our, I mean, we're a small country in terms of economic size. It's very easy to have large inflows coming in uh, simply because somebody decides somewhere that uh, let's do a little more in the emerging markets. Uh, but their actual knowledge of uh, the fundamentals in individual countries is quite limited. So you do run the risk in a, in a developing country, you do run the risk of sudden shocks and sudden reversals. Now, we need, we've known that, and we need to be very prepared for that. Uh, and I think one of the ways we get prepared for that is to have large enough reserves. I think we're doing a good job on that score. Uh, the other way you get prepared for that is sort of don't allow too many things to get out of line. I mean, whether it's the real exchange rate, the fiscal deficit, or monetary policy. So, you know, any of these things can become a problem at any time. But I would say right now, 
we are not in an unreasonable position, uh, but we need to keep a very sharp eye out for any major change that may occur in the global situation. I mean, at the moment in India, for example, the rising oil prices definitely put our current account deficit under a fair amount of pressure. And we have to see how that, how that evolves in the course of this year. Uh, but I would say at the moment, for us, uh, looking at those things, seeing what needs to be done to correct them, and of course, fixing our banks with the problems that we know exist, which, uh, I mean, everybody is familiar with, and it takes a lot of time. Uh, but those are the things that we need to concentrate on. Uh, Dr. Alwale, you answered my question on what India needs to do to reduce vulnerability. So I'll put one last question to you on the global front. Again, uh, you know, uh, sort of a question which doesn't really have an answer, but has it been a, a puzzle to you as to why the unconventional monetary policy didn't spark off uh, higher inflationary trends across the world? Because I think that was one of the fears at the time when this was being done, that inflation uh, could rise quite rapidly in uh, the aftermath of such an unconventional monetary policy. It hasn't played out that way. Well, you know, there is a view that, uh, I, I mean, I think when the, when the uh, during the 90s, when the sort of great, uh, the myth of the uh, masters of the universe, i.e. the central bankers, managing the great moderation and through sensible monetary policy, ensuring low, low interest rates, low inflation, et cetera, the history on that needs to be a little bit rewritten in the sense a lot of the low inflation was really due to the fact that there's lots and lots of potential supply for goods of goods coming in from emerging markets with low wages. I mean, China is the best example of that, but there are many others that are now trying to do the same thing. So uh, I think the reason why you didn't get inflation is simply that of course, what it meant was you got a bigger current account deficit, not inflation. Uh, now, what is dangerous is if we see a big reversal in policy with the protectionist barriers being raised and all the rest of it, then you will certainly see inflation. Uh, I mean, either you have to give up loose monetary policy and you see other consequences, or you will see inflation. So I think the jury is a little out on that. Uh, I think the reason why you didn't see inflation earlier is because you had much more open economies in the industrialized world and people didn't mind too much uh, running a large current account deficit. You know, the other side of that coin of not minding running a current account deficit is somebody is willing to accumulate dollars to pay for it. I mean, if people cease to want to accumulate dollars and you run a large current account deficit, then basically the dollar will depreciate and you will have rising inflation uh, even with given world prices. Now, the U.S. has not had that problem. In fact, right now the dollar is appreciating. So it's a, it's a number of different things playing out. All right, and the jury perhaps still out. Uh, Dr. Aluwalia, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thanks so much for joining us here on Bloomberg Quint. Uh, that was a conversation. Uh, looking back, well, 10 years, uh, and also looking a little bit forward. Thanks for joining us on Bloomberg Quint on this special series of conversations, Lehman, a decade later.